Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Last Thursday, as you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she is stepping down, sort of. She'll continue to represent her San Francisco district in the House, but she will no longer lead the caucus that she has guided for over two decades. The announcement marks the end of a remarkable rise that took Pelosi from Baltimore, where she was the daughter of a political dynasty, to San Francisco, where she was a stay-at-home mom and Democratic activist, and finally to Congress, where she became the first woman ever to serve as Speaker of the House. My guest this week, Molly Ball, has covered Pelosi's career closely. In 2020, she published a biography of the House Speaker aptly titled Pelosi. Molly is the national political correspondent for Time magazine. Molly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is stepping back from the speakership. You surprised? Yes and no. Uh, there's been pressure on her to step down for more than a decade now. Uh, pressure that she's resisted. Uh, and as we know, when uh, when she takes a position, she doesn't tend to budge. But it, it has been seeming like it was time. And so I'm not completely surprised. I think a lot of people thought that she might retire altogether after this midterm. Uh, and I think the, the way the midterm ended up gave her a good avenue to sort of to, to hang it up, to, to not feel like she was being forced out or, or, or going out on a loss. Although, of course, the Democrats did lose the House and she would be forced out of the speakership whether she wanted to or not. But at least this way she can say, you know, the Democrats did better than expected. She's sort of leaving on a high note. She seems to view the midterm almost as a victory, given how unexpectedly good it was for the Democrats. And then by sticking around in Congress, she has she gets the chance to sort of take a victory lap, spend a couple years just collecting and giving thank yous and saying goodbye right. to her. Right. She's going to go on a two-year thank you tour, she said, basically. That's right. How much did the brutal attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi, have to do with the decision, you think? It's interesting. She she said it affected the decision. Yeah. Uh, and when I spoke to her on Thursday, which was right after she gave that farewell speech on the floor of the House, what she said was, uh, you know, some people thought it might make her more inclined to leave, but it was the opposite. It made her more inclined to stay because she didn't want to give them what she said was she, she couldn't give them the satisfaction of forcing her out. And by them, I think she means not only specifically her husband's attacker, but all of the people who have sort of 
demonized and vilified her over the years and and made her such a target and and all of the 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 republicans and she was careful to point out you know it was not all republicans who were who were callous and horrible in the aftermath of that attack but some of them surely were some of them made jokes and didn't express any kind of sympathy or humanity no the opposite so i think that's who she she felt she could not give the satisfaction so i, I want to talk about the note on which she leaves and you and you talked about it a second ago a little bit you know there have been times in recent years and you've written about this, of course, that people kind of wanted Pelosi out, whether it was folks in the center or folks, you know, way on the left. Do you think she sort of sewed up a collaboration of Democrats and a consensus of Democrats by the end that she was not successful in doing before? Yes, I really do. And I think it, it most of the credit goes to Donald Trump, frankly. A lot of the credit goes to Nancy Pelosi, uh, but some of it really goes to, to Trump and, and the sort of foil that he provided for her during uh, the four years of his presidency and even the aftermath. As a unifier, uh, he unified them? He unified the Democrats, but he also really, in the way that he was just the opposite of her, he gave her a chance to to show the relevance of her skills, right? He, she, she, she's an institutionalist. She's someone who believes very deeply in in Congress and in, in the process and in the rules and, and the rule of law and so on. She sort of represents order and he represented chaos. And so in the way that she was able to keep things under control when he was trying to destroy them, he, uh, she sort of uh, showed a lot of people why her skills were so valuable. You know, it was in 2018 that she really faced, uh, I think, the, the high point of the resistance to her be staying on as the Democrats' leader. And as a result of those negotiations with the moderates in her caucus, uh, she accepted this sort of informal term limit, said she would not serve more than two more terms as speaker. So those are the two terms that have now just expired. And so part of the reason she's leaving now is that she said she would four years ago when she was at that weak point with her caucus, and she had to make that promise. But then in the ensuing four years uh, of, of, of serving as speaker, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump, you know, remember when she took that gavel in January 2019, the government was shut down. Right. For the longest government shutdown in our history. And she stared down Trump and forced him to cave. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, really several years of, of, of forcing Trump to accept her terms. So I want to talk about her legacy, obviously, and her political skills and some of the other qualities she had. But one, one thing I think it's fair to say, you tell me, that she's kind of become iconic. And I'm not sure that would have been so... 10, 12 years ago, even if it was true that she became the first woman leader of a political party in the House. And there are these moments, and I, I see people put them on Twitter in the last couple of days, whether she's ripping up Donald Trump's speech or clapping in a particular way. Do you agree that she has become iconic in a way that few politicians have become that? And if so, how that happened? Yes, absolutely. And it has been fascinating. You know, so much of what I chart in my book is not just her own history, but the history of how she's been perceived. And it has a lot to do with the backdrop that she came up against and what she represents as a pathbreaking woman. You know, she really had to fight her way into uh, congressional leadership against the male-dominated Democratic establishment. And for many years, uh, she was underappreciated, undervalued, subject to all kinds of attacks and demonization, much of it gendered. 
And uh, much of it also completely fair, right? She's in the arena and politics ain't beanbag and she's never complained about being the subject of all of this. Uh, but I think it has taken a while. And I think, again, it took Trump and, and it took the sort of feminist mobilization that Trump inspired. Let's not forget that, you know, the, the first woman major party presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, did not inspire this outpouring of women's activism. It took Donald Trump to inspire that. And the day after Trump got elected, when the, when women took to the streets, I think that was really the engine that powered not only uh, Nancy Pelosi getting that gavel back, right, because it was really women organizing and voting and running for office that powered the Democrats win in the 2018 midterms. Uh, but it also powered a, a, a reevaluation of Pelosi, a reconsideration of what she brought to the table at a time when she'd been viewed uh, almost completely through the lens of this, these attacks and this caricature of, of how you know polarizing and how negatively she was viewed, uh, when she got that gavel back and showed what she could do going toe-to-toe -to -toe to, with Trump, it made people, I think, look back on her history and say, wait a minute, here's someone who's always been this tough, who's always been able to, to, to do this job. Sure, maybe she's not the best for us politically, maybe we don't like having her face in all those attack ads, but the actual job of Speaker of the House is very difficult and very complicated and a very specific set of skills. And if you want someone who can hold together a very slim majority, who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the opposition in negotiations, who can get mammoth pieces of leg legislation uh, passed in very difficult circumstances, there really is no one better. Can I ask you, and I think you've addressed this in your book, what role her Catholic faith played in her abilities and her rise and her style of leadership. I remember one press conference she was at that was very striking. And I think it was for a lot of people where she was asked about her hatred of Donald Trump. And she says, I don't hate anybody. My faith teaches me not to hate anybody, but to love everyone. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, her faith has is a huge part of her life and it's very sincere. And it has been, you know, since the day she was born. And it has been tricky for her at times, particularly when she first became speaker. Uh, she went up against the church in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and and her position on abortion, uh, she's become much more aggressive about it and I would say comfortable about it over the years. But when she was first in Congress, she at one point said she uh, she hoped her mother didn't see when she gave a, a speech in favor of reproductive rights on the floor of the House because it was not a popular position, even with her own family. Now, she has always taken the sort of liberal interpretation of Catholic doctrine, the sort of Catholic social justice interpretation uh, that foregrounds human rights. She's always been very strong on international human rights. Uh, in China, but also everywhere around the world. Back in the 80s, when it was not as popular a position, even within the Democratic Party, she was always very uh, strong on gay rights. And, you know, in, in, in 1984, when she helped bring the Democratic Convention to San Francisco, and she was confronted on this issue, and she said, you know, my faith teaches me that, that gay people are, are human beings like everyone else, and we have to love them. So she has always drawn uh, drawn that from her faith, the idea uh, that everybody has value and that everybody uh, deserves uh, to be loved and protected. And so uh, when she made that comment or when she said on another occasion that she was praying for Donald Trump, she was telling the truth, uh, even if I think some people didn't believe her. Yeah. So let's go from faith to something very different, to fundraising. And it's one of the things that doesn't get talked about as much 
in connection with Nancy Pelosi, but she is a formidable, I want a stronger word, a prodigious, unbelievable fundraiser for the Democrats. How does that, how did that come to be? And how much of a loss will her absence be in that regard? You know, you're absolutely right. All this other stuff we're talking about, it's really the fundraising that uh, people within the, the Democratic caucus talk about first when they when they worry about how they'll ever possibly replace what what she has brought. And, and, you know, this has been the source of a lot of the criticism of her from the left, too, right? That she is uh, so, uh, I don't want to use the word beholden, but she certainly is is in with a lot of the big money interests, relies on that money to to keep getting Democrats elected. And, and she would say that she, you know, she favors campaign finance reform and would like to get all this money out of politics. But as long as th- these are the rules, she's not going to unilaterally disarm. Uh, she was a fundraiser before she was a politician, uh, having... Uh, having married uh, Paul Pelosi, who's who's in finance, who became very wealthy, uh, she had access to a lot of rich people and a lot of people at the upper echelons of, of politics. Uh, and, you know, it's a very similar set of skills in a lot of ways. You have to basically uh, butter up a lot of people who think they're very important and make them do things for you. And she's and that's something that uh, she's always been very good at. So, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to get your head around this number. But during the time that she's been in Democratic leadership, she's raised more than one point two billion dollars for the Democratic Party. And just in this past cycle, I believe the number is about three hundred million. So when I spoke to her last week, she said it, it comes out to about a million dollars a day, at least on the weekdays, over the course of that two-year cycle. Uh, and she just, you know, if you ever have have seen her schedule, she she's constantly traveling, constantly making phone calls, uh, and uh, there's going to be a big hole in Democrats fundraising without her around. Is she someone using the the famous question, would would you rather be loved or feared? Which did she prefer in her career? Well, I think the answer for her would be neither. She'd rather get things done. Yeah. And there's a point where actually uh, when they were thinking about doing health care reform in, in, in 2009 that she said as much to to uh, about or to or about Barack Obama said, uh, you know, the president wants to wants to be loved and wants to get things done. He's gonna, he's going to have to choose. And for her, that choice has always been clear. Uh, one of her mentors once used the word to describe her, uh, the, the word is operational, relentlessly <laughs> focused on the goal, relentlessly focused on results. And I've always thought that was sort of the key to understanding her. You know, you ask her about, oh my gosh, all these people hate you. They say such nasty things about you. She'll just, she, she says, I don't want to hear that. But what she said to me a few years ago to that question was, if I weren't effective, I wouldn't be a target. And so it's that effectiveness that she's concerned with. So yeah, would she rather be feared than loved if she had to choose? Probably. But what she would really prefer is to get things done. What do you think accounts for her sheer longevity? I mean, that's a remarkable thing. People get chewed up and spit out in politics. Obviously, there's some people who last a long time. What was her key to not just general success and iconic status, but longevity, you think? Well, in the most literal sense, (laughs) when you ask her about like, my God, you know, I'm half your age and my shoes are half as high and I can't keep up with your daily schedule. And she just says, well, I'm Italian. We have great stamina. (laughs) She literally believes that, you know, if you're talking about her physical longevity or physical stamina, she she chalks it up to to her Italian heritage. Can we pause on that for a minute? minute? Because I just, that's just so interesting. And you've obviously written about and thought about and covered not just Nancy Pelosi, but other politicians. And it's something that Trump puts at issue. It's something that is put in issue from time to time when you have an older politician. Sheer physical stamina, whether in relation to Nancy Pelosi or other politicians, how important is that? 
I mean, it's important, right? I mean, if you're not awake and functioning, it's hard to do the job. And with uh, so many of our leaders being so advanced in age, I think it's a question that we're increasingly confronting is how do we even talk about uh, in a in a respectful but real way, whether you're talking about the current president of the United States, the last president of the United States, the other congressional leaders who are all getting up there in years. This is really uh, a, a tricky thing to deal with because obviously not everybody ages in the same way. And we should all be so lucky uh, to go into our 80s as, as seemingly healthy and vigorous as Nancy Pelosi is, but we don't have any control over that. You know, you can try to eat healthy and get enough sleep, but uh, at some point, it's 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 really not up to us. So uh, more than anything, she's she's just been lucky, right? Uh, and, uh, and and it would be easy to ascribe it to to other more cosmic factors, but uh, this is someone who barely sleeps, who lives on you know dark chocolate and chocolate ice cream for the most part. <laughs> right. uh, and she doesn't drink, and she doesn't drink ca- uh, coffee either, which many people are surprised to find out. Um, but, you know, we saw her in those January 6th the videos that came out through the committee making calls to try to protect American democracy while noshing on a Slim Jim. So it's not like she's gotten here by, you know, being vegan and only eating nuts and berries. At some point, you just you have the makeup or you don't. I'm going to start eating Slim Jims. That's my that's my <laughs> New Year's resolution. <laughs> that's my New Year's. <laughs> longevity is beef jerky. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever, too, then. Her crowning achievement as a legislator, according to her, am I correct that it's the Affordable Care Act? Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because people think about that have, as having been a presidential initiative and the Senate was in play and there's those memorable moments of the votes up and down in the Senate. Tell me about Nancy Pelosi's relationship to and, and thinking about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, it is the number one thing that that she uh, sees as her legacy. And that makes sense, right? I mean, this had been a sort of liberal aspiration for the better part of a century, as far back as you know Jimmy Carter in the 70s or, or decades before that, but also, you know, with uh, with President Clinton trying and failing to get Hillary care in the 90s. This is something that Democrats had been trying to do for a really long time. And it's easy to take it for granted now and, and say, oh, you know, there's plenty of people who still don't have health insurance, still don't have access to care or are paying too much for it. But it's, it really is a, a generational liberal achievement to have gotten close to universal access to health care. And, and she played an, an absolutely crucial role in it. I think the most crucial moment uh, was when, uh, you know, the House had already passed a version of health care reform in late 2009, uh, which she had sort of moved mountains to do, negotiating with the various different wings of the caucus. And the Senate was still screwing around, not to put too fine a point on it. And then the Democrats lost the Senate seat in Massachusetts that was their 60th vote. And uh, there were people in the White House who thought, well, that's it then. We, we can't do it. And it was Nancy Pelosi who, in a meeting in the White House uh, with Barack Obama and some other some of his advisors to his face said, Mr. President, we, we've come too far. We can't give up. And, you know, knowing that there might be a political price to be paid, knowing that it was going to be very, very, very difficult uh, to get this through without that 60th vote, uh, she was the one who, and now Obama will tell you today, although it's not the evidence at the time is a bit inconclusive, he would say today that he never lost faith. Maybe some people around him did, but he didn't. 
Uh, but she really steeled his spine, and uh, not for nothing, he knew that she could back it up. He knew that if she told him that she could get the votes for something, that meant that she could. She wasn't going to tell him, uh, she wasn't going to make a promise that she couldn't deliver. And over the ensuing months, as the Senate gradually got there and, and the House had to uh, go along with a, a, a bill that was very unpalatable uh, to the to the House. Um, she got it done, and 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 I really think that you know as much as the Senate drama got more attention, you know, in some ways because she makes things look easy, she doesn't necessarily right. get uh, get the credit for some of these things. Uh, she she'll sometimes describe herself as you know that classic image of the swan gliding gracefully above the water, but down beneath it's paddling frantically. That's sort of how she sees herself. Uh, and that was really the case uh, with healthcare, where uh, it got done uh, in large part because she was so determined and because she she refused to give up. We got to wrap up soon, but you you mentioned a few minutes ago that you spoke to Nancy Pelosi last week. Do you have some sense of what her emotional state is? Is she sad? Is she nostalgic? Is it a bittersweet thing? Is she resolute? Is she looking forward? Is she looking backward? How is she feeling about all this? You know, it's so funny because in asking her about how she felt, she sort of couldn't choose, and it seemed to be a little bit of both. So I think bittersweet is the right word. You know, uh, we were trying to pin her down on, well, you know, are 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 you, are you sad and nostalgic? Are you excited and relieved? And she, and and, and the word she settled on finally was balanced. <laughs> so sort of an all <laughs> of the above. And, yeah, and I and I think that that makes sense, right? It's clear that you know she talked a lot about about her family, about her father, about having, about looking back on having come to the house floor for the first time when she was just six years old. And she also talked about what she's looking forward to, being unburdened of of, of the responsibilities of, of leadership and being able to just be a regular old member of Congress, which to her seems like an easy job, right, compared to everything she's been doing. So I think there's a certain amount of excitement that she has to be able to to go out on this high note and and spend a, a, two years in a victory lap, but obviously she she also feels a lot of nostalgia and and uh, and feels the weight of that history. So so I think it's all of the above. I think um, I think there's a little bit of excitement and 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 a little bit of of nostalgia at the same time. Okay, so final question: As we said at the outset, Nancy Pelosi is stepping down from her leadership position, but she's remaining in the House. We don't know what she'll do in 2024. Is there any chance that Nancy Pelosi pulls a Tom Brady and comes back? <laughs> With her, there's always a chance. Oh, honestly. there is. Oh. There's, you never know because, you know, I mean, there have been so many times in the past that people expected her uh, to go and she didn't. Uh, and some of that is, uh, you know, her her sense of, of obligation. And, but some of that is feeling like, well, nobody else knows how to do this job. So if she looks around and doesn't feel like there's somebody better to take her place, you never know. She's clearly had a hard time letting go to this point, and uh, I wouldn't put anything past her. Molly Ball, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insight. Appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. 
Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashur. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.